0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I am the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter, at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. Also check out our videos and podcasts on Vimeo, SoundCloud, and iTunes. We've interviewed over 210 guests during the course of Disrupt TV. It is now my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. I'm one of the top futurists, most influential futurists on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, from a remote, unknown location to Disrupt TV. And I don't know if Ray's with us, so I'm gonna just jump right into our our first guest. It is an honor for us to have Dr. Mark Lombardi, president of Maryville University as our first guest. Uh, Dr. Lombardi is the 10th president of Maryville University and has served there since 2007. During his tenure, Maryville University has more than doubled enrollment to over 8,000 students hailing from 50 states and 60 countries. In 2017, the Chronicle of Higher Education recognized Maryville as the third fastest growing private university in the nation. And in 2013-14, it was named uh, USA News and World Report number one overperforming university in the entire country. For over 25 years, at three uh, different institutions, Dr. Lombardi has served as Ten-year faculty member of political science, international relations, department chair, director of international programs, vice president of academic affairs, provost, and now president. He's a noted author, published several articles and three books, one of which will soon be in its 10th edition. Uh, welcome President Lombardi to uh, Disrupt TV.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You read all that stuff. I feel old now. <laughs>
0: You know, funny thing is, uh, President Lombardi, I had to shorten your bio. We've done a lot, but we only have a 20-minute segment. Well, so thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. So the, the theme, and, you know, last week you were kind enough to speak at uh, a Salesforce higher education event, and certainly the theme has been uh, disruption in higher education. Can you talk about where is higher ed? in this disruption process, and maybe add some commentary interrupt of your view of what we are calling uh, a disruptive process?
1: Well, I think uh, metaphorically speaking, high ed has struck the iceberg and is taking on water, but not everybody on the boat believes it yet. And they better start believing it because things are really uh, in a state where uh, Christensen talks about the fact that of institutions in the next 10 to 15 years are going to close. Out of the 4,000 institutions of higher ed, 2,000 are going to close, and and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's an accurate assessment. A lot of it has to do with uh, not keeping up with the pedagogy, not keeping up with technology, not keeping up with learning theory and learning diagnostics and the whole concept of personalized learning, things that we're doing here at Maryville. But... You know, the disruption of the higher ed space is at the core of the culture of higher ed. It's at the core of admission processes, the way we do business, uh, the way we teach, the way we determine student outcomes. All of it is antiquated. It's a 20th century or even in some cases a 19th century model. And we're now in a 21st century world. So that we're in the midst of it. There are some institutions that have recognized it and are moving fast into into these uh, new and amazing areas of learning, pedagogy, instruction, uh, but a lot of schools are far far behind and and they're floundering as a result.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Professor Clay Christians of Harvard Business that predicting that you know 50 percent of the 4,000 colleges will. Will, uh, will go bankrupt in the next 10 to 15. In fact, U.S. Department of Education predicts closure rates of small colleges and universities will triple uh, and mergers will double. So that's it, it seems like education is ripe for disruption. You also look at student success rates in terms of graduating on time, on budget, as well as a well over trillion dollar debt. Uh, now you add to that uh, the certain beliefs that there's an elite status where certain universities and colleges feel like they're protected from failure. Um, Can you talk about some of the newer emerging technologies like online education and how that will have, it started with massive open online courses, then there were specialized smaller versions of MOOCs. Today there are 1,500 students taking machine learning courses at Stanford at freshman level. Uh, So certainly access to education and affordability is certainly something that's uh, a disruptive uh, force within education.
1: Well, there are three things really that to focus on in this area. One is the concept of personalized education. We all learn differently. Our brains all function differently. The idea of warehouse learning where you bring in young people and put them in these large classes, teach them one way and expect them to learn is Frankly, it's antiquated and preposterous. What we should be doing, what we're doing here at Maryville and other institutions are doing, taking students individualized and putting them in environments, problem-solving environments where they can operate and learn in the way their brain functions. And what the online experience does, frankly, is it augments that kind of instruction and it opens that up. The other part of that is the notion of elite status that you mentioned you know for hundreds of years universities have measured their own self-worth by who they don't let in and the reality is, and the reality is standardized testing SATs ACTs high school GPA have no relationship whatsoever to academic College collegiate or career success. So what we have to do is strip away and completely eliminate that model providing access and opportunity to young people and working adults basing the instruction on their own personalized learning style and delivering it to them in the modality that best suits them, including in the online space. That also means that these students are going to be able to matriculate through these degree programs at their own pace. There's nothing sacrosanct that says you have to spend four years in order to get a great education. Some people can do it in one, two, three, four, five, or what have you. The flexibility and the accessibility are the key to what the future of higher ed is going to look like.
0: One of the things that's uh, very well known about Maryville University is the fact that you're partnering with businesses on curriculum development, and that's just one aspect of how you're uh, managing uh, the impact of disruption and and really uh, developing a strategy for sustainable growth and relevance. Can you talk about uh, some of the initiatives uh, that Maryville is doing uh, that's disruptive in the industry? starting with the partnership with businesses to develop curriculum?
1: Well, for decades, it's been the, the mantra that curriculum belongs to the faculty. And on some level, it's true. Faculty have a very important role to play in curriculum. What we do at Maryville is when we are designing or redesigning curriculum, we bring industry in. We bring the relevant industries, companies, whether it's Edward Jones or whether it's Apple or whether it's Salesforce or whether it's uh, Mercy Hospital, what have you, We bring them in to help us design the curriculum or redesign it so it's cutting edge and it's current. The most important thing that we can do for these students is provide curriculum that's going to really prepare them for the world ahead, the world today and the world to come. And you can only do that by having practitioners in the room with the faculty. So instead of having these walls built up, where we say, look, we're the only ones who can design curriculum. Frankly, that's crazy. Really, curriculum has to be designed in partnership with business, with industry, and then delivered with industry and in partnership. And that's when you provide the most robust, cutting-edge education. And one of the things we do at Maryville is we, don't, we break down those walls and we invite industry in. We've, we've had numbers of, of different businesses in, in the room I'm in right here helping our faculty design curriculum in cybersecurity in coding in financial services in a in a hundred other disciplines and it's proven to be very very effective
0: that's awesome uh, i've also read that uh, faculty administration uses analytics and big data to ensure student success it, can you can you elaborate on that a bit
1: well you know universities it's fascinating we have been gathering data on students for decades for <laughs> even longer. And what's amazing is everyone holds on to that data in each office. So enrollment gathers data and holds onto it. Advancement mm-hmm. gathers data, the faculty, g- and no one shares it. And one of the amazing things about platforms like Salesforce is that flattens out that data, allows us to draw upon it. And out of that build sophisticated data analytics that I'll give you an example of how we use it. We're able to use it to, take learning profiles and learning diagnostics of students, looking at what they're doing and how they're doing, we can build models to support them, models to provide student services. We can build predictive models to know, we know that if a, student, a student's gonna struggle in week six of their chemistry uh, course, for example, and have the resources available to help them before it happens. So data analytics allows us to do the most important thing we're here to do. It's to provide the best possible service and the best possible advising and counseling of our students to give them the best position to be successful. And that's how we use data analytics and quite frankly, uh, it's night and day above where it was just a few short years ago uh, when, uh, when I was a faculty member.
0: That's amazing. So, you know, it, I have a sense that financially and operationally, you're managing the institution university as a business to serve customers. Those customers are all the stakeholders, students, faculty, administration, uh, business partners, the community. Uh, What type of, uh, how do you cultivate a culture? Because this is not like other universities where you're operating like a business and you're really focusing, you know, the student at the center. Where, where, you know, all of the decisions are made to, to aim at improving the, you know, student success.
1: Well, the the first thing we do is we operate on the concept of no margin, no mission. So you have to operate the the business of higher ed as a business. You have to generate revenue to reinvest in the learning, in the teaching, in the students. And in order to do that, You have to have the people in a room who know how to manage that business. The worst thing you can do is create a budget by committee. The worst thing you can do is administer a budget by committee. That's a recipe for bankruptcy. It's a recipe for disaster. So we run everything like a business. And the way we operate is this. Everything in the classroom should be challenging. It should be difficult. It should stretch the student intellectually to be the best that they can. Everything outside of it should be as easy as can be. It should be a service. And we treat the students as a customer. So so we don't make students wait in line for, for their IDs or to pay their bills or to do various things. We believe in all those service elements to be very, very important from the standpoint of the best customer service possible. And by the way, students and their parents have a choice of institutions it costs money to go get an education they can choose where to go and they choose what they want to pay last i checked that's the definition of a customer
0: absolutely absolutely ray i don't know if you uh, are able to hear us but are you able to join us
2: i have i've been hearing about what a definition of a customer is and i think that that's that's really important because what we're seeing in higher ed today um there are multiple sets of customers and and as you probably know um, it, it's, it's very, very exciting in terms of how people are actually redefining where education is going. So, but question with you on, um, you know, how do you partner with businesses on curriculum development? Like we're in the area of reskilling, having to deal with different types of training. Corporates are trying to figure out, do they have the skill sets that they need for the future? So there's like in-flight employee reskilling, and then there's new graduate reskilling. How are you guys handling those types of challenges?
1: Well, the mo- we talked earlier, the most important thing, Ray, is you've got to listen to business. Instead of telling them what they think you think they need, you have to do the reverse. Sit there and listen and let them tell us what they need. For example, in financial services, we've sat in the room with Edward Jones and others. We've listened to what they're looking for and the skill sets that they need. And then we design the curriculum with them, partnering with them. Curriculum is far too important to be left just to us academics to design. It has to be designed by, in a partnership. And that's one of the things we are very proud of here at Meriville. We invite an industry, we listen to them, then we design it to fit. And by the way, over time, as those businesses and professions evolve and change, then we adapt and we change. The curriculum can't be static. It has to be a living, breathing, changing organism all the time.
0: So, uh, President Lombardi, you've been at Maryville University for a decade. Uh, when you joined, uh, you know, this was introduced to the market, just to put perspective, you know, where now every student has a computer in their pocket, uh, which they didn't have when you joined Maryville. So, when you talk about, you know, in 2004, the launch of Facebook, and in 2006, Twitter, so the revolution of social the iPhone in 2007, the revolution of mobile, cloud computing, which enabled the application economy. Uh, you know, in the in, in, in the early 2000s. Uh, at what point did you realize that higher ed is ripe for disruption? And and what you know what have you uh, and and your team have done in terms of uh, understanding the impact of technology and how students absorb? Information and what transformational needs are needed in the university to really uh, ensure student success?
1: Well, I think, really, if you as I look back on it around 2009, 2010 was when we really began realizing with the advent of, as you talk about, the smartphones and iPads and so forth, we realized that this revolution of technology, learning, and access was going to. Uh, explode geometrically, and the democratization of knowledge and information was a wonderful, amazing, powerful thing, and that educational institutions were going to have to adapt to that. So we started with the premise that the first thing, the most important thing, is going to be connectivity. You've got to have the connectivity wired and wireless on your campus and in your environment if students are going to be able to access all of this. So we invested really millions in making sure that we were in the top 10% of campuses nationwide in connectivity because we knew that was going to be the new definition of curb appeal, right? My generation... Curb appeal is you drive somewhere and you look around and you like the way it looks, it has curb appeal. For today's, the Gen Z generation, it's you pull out your cell phone and if you can download what you want to download quickly, that's curb appeal. So we knew that connectivity was first. And then building on that, we knew that, that these amazing devices were not it's not the device it's the world that it opens up to students the fact that content is completely democratized so in that sense we realized we had to change our whole way of approach instead of faculty being keepers of content they're no longer keepers of content they're facilitators of a student's journey to learning so once we embrace that and moved in that direction uh, it's accelerated. And our faculty and our staff have really embraced it. and we've 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 got all these pie Pipers on our campus that are doing incredible things. I'm amazed at what they can do. I they're 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 incredibly innovative. Me sometimes, I feel like the water level is right right about here. Me too. But, uh, but my job is to facilitate all of that, and that's what we've been able to do. but it really started 2009, 2010, and And what's beautiful is it's so organic. And it evolves and it develops. And really, all you have to do is give it oxygen and energy, and it will take off. You don't have to manage or control it.
2: Absolutely. Wow. You know, I think this is really, really insightful. Um, as we wrap up, what are some first steps we can take um, tomorrow to be more like these uh, quirky breakthrough innovators and, and kind of facilitate that not just in our, in our organizations, even in, inside on campuses or even in schools? Uh, what, what's a good way to start?
1: Well, I, 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 the way I do it, the way we do it here is we question every assumption. We, we, we reject any process or system that's been in place for an extended period of time. We assume that that process or system is antiquated and needs to be changed. And then bringing together a creative group of people that aren't hamstrung by those things and say, look, how should it work? And in the case of a university, how should it work best for the student? The student is the central person that is first and foremost, we have to serve student needs and student outcomes and student expectations. And as long as you keep that focus and you, you get a creative peop, group of people together, they can create, innovate, they can disrupt and eliminate the existing processes, and they'll create some amazing things. And, and often it's just giving, giving them the venue and empowering them to do that. And that's the first step. It's, it's jettison the assumptions, and walk forward and do it with some courage. It's fun. Don't be scared by it. It's a, it's a, it's a brave world out there. And uh, we're, at Maryville, I'm here to say the water's warm. Join the innovation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sage advice. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an honor to have uh, uh, President Mark Lombardi of Maryville University on Disrupt TV. We look forward to learning from you in the future. And thanks again for being on our show.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you.
0: Thank you, sir. Wow. It's, it's, it's great to see university trailblazers really taking advantage of innovation, um, not just technology, but innovation in processes and recruitment and retainment of talent to really help student success. I, I really congratulate uh, Dr. Lombardi for the work that they're doing. And this is a great segue to another amazing educator and innovator and uh, world-renowned strategist. As our, as our second guest, we have Dr. Dr. Melissa Schilling, professor at NYU and author of a new book, Quirky, The, the Remarkable Story of Traits, Formals and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. Uh, it's an amazing book that we're gonna talk about uh, with, with uh, Dr. Schilling. Uh, professor Schilling is a, a John Herzog, Family Professor of Management and Organization at NYU, Stern and one of the world's leading experts on innovation. Uh, Professor Schilling's textbook, Strategic Management of Technological Innovation, is the number one innovation strategy textbook in the world, and it's available in seven language, fifth edition. Uh, Professor Schilling's work has been featured in NPR, Bloomberg, BusinessWeek, HBR, Huffington Post, CNBC, and many, many more media outlets. Uh, Professor Schilling speaks regularly at national and international conferences, as well as corporations on strategy and innovation a fantastic follow on Twitter, you can follow Professor Schilling at M-S-C-H-I-L-L-I number one, one, numeric one. Uh, uh, thank you and welcome Professor Schilling to Disrupt TV.
3: Thanks for having me, it's fun.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And hey, welcome. I've been using the word quirky all day because of you. Everything's like quirky. And that's <laughs> what I'm looking around. And which trait do you think is most surprising? I mean, you wrote this book, lots of great innovation, innovators out there, lots of great insights. Um, who, what traits, I mean, what trait was the thing that you might say unify some of these innovators, Yeah, uh, people that are breakthrough folks?
3: Okay, so one of the things that was interesting is how much they had in common. But if I had to pick one that surprised me the most, it would be the fact that they all had this sense of separateness, this uh, feeling that they didn't really belong to the social world around them, like a detachment or a disconnect. And on the one hand, this could make them feel a little bit lonely sometimes. So Einstein wrote about this feeling detached and a little bit lonely, but it also made them independent thinkers. And because they didn't really feel like the rules that applied to other people applied to them, it helped them to really challenge what other people thought was possible.
2: Does that, does that make them not self-aware or did it just make them a lot more cognizant?
3: Well, whether or not they were self-aware, that's a tricky question. I mean, a lot of them you would say were a little awkward. They weren't all awkward, but some of them were awkward. Um, You could be separate for different reasons. So, for instance, Thomas Edison was very, very deaf. He was largely deaf, and that made him feel very separate from people. And uh, he tended to isolate himself, and and he had camaraderie with his friends at the lab, but he also, you know, his wife talked a lot about how he doesn't have friends the way a normal man would have. He has to work on his invention. Uh, Steve Jobs was very different. Steve Jobs had this assertive, domineering personality, but he definitely felt like the rules didn't apply to him. So he didn't shower very often and he didn't put a license plate on his car. And oh yeah, would, the
2: Mercedes. <laughs>
3: yeah, he would stare at people intensely without blinking. He would violate a lot of social norms because in his mind, those rules just didn't apply to him.
0: So in your book, you you, you dove deeply into the lives of Albert Einstein, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Elon Musk, uh, Dean Kamen, Nikola Tesla, Mary Curry, uh, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs. And... I, I read in your book, you, uh, there was a reference to Elon Musk, and you said, Elon Musk uh, exhibited this intense appetite for books. As a child, he read every single book in his local library and then started onto the encyclopedia. Yeah. And in an interview, uh, he, he said that I was raised by books. Books are then my parents. Uh, so my question is, uh, can you learn to think like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs? by becoming a ferocious reader, or are there certain traits that you can try to uh, incorporate as practice so that you can start to think like a quirky
3: innovator? Yeah, Uh, that's a complex question with a complex answer. So on the one hand, I have to say these were all people that were extremely intelligent. They were all also noted for having exceptional memories. Uh, Both Elon Musk and Nikola Tesla have photographic memories which enabled them to do advanced calculus and physics in their head Which Mm -hmm. is something that that's difficult for us to emulate on the other hand uh, One of the things that all, all the innovators exhibited actually relates to something that Mark Lombardi said Which is that they needed an individualized path of study a lot of them actually didn't like school Uh, Some of them didn't do well in school. Others were known as like difficult, uh, irreverent, or disrespectful students. And the reason is that the structure constrained them. They wanted to study at their own pace as deep or as far or as wide as they wanted. And having somebody else set the pace was very aggravating for them. Uh, And this goes back to the separateness. Uh, One of the things you find is that these people, because they taught themselves a lot of things, they tended to read books and study topics of their own choosing, they had an intense amount of intrinsic motivation. And they formed very heterodox ideas. Like They would challenge assumptions and believe the way the world works in their own way. And that helped them to be more creative. They weren't just buying into the norms and assumptions that other people had.
2: Wow, that's uh, that's huge. And and is there also a factor along with those like those traits that you're seeing uh, around where people lived or who they're surrounded around that were more environmental factors as opposed to um, genetic or or bio bio-based factors?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Uh... First of all, all of them had advantages based on timing and also access to resources. So there are a lot of people who became serial breakthrough innovators around the rise of information technology. And I, I could have put 20 innovators in the book around that time period because it was just a very ripe time for lots of innovations to happen. And then you'll notice that Tesla and Edison and to some degree Einstein all emerged around the time of electrification. So there are times when technology shocks make the world ripe for breakthrough innovation. So timing is a big thing. You also will notice that Marie Curie faced enormous obstacles to do what she did because during her time, women weren't welcome in science and business. And in fact, most universities universities didn't allow women. So the fact that she was able to do what she did is amazing. And when you study her story, you understand completely why there aren't more women on the top of these lists.
2: That makes a lot of sense.
3: You you
0: talked about uh, this social disconnectedness, and I'll go back to a reference uh, regarding Elon Musk, where uh, you wrote that he was so introspective as a child that his family thought he was deaf. Yeah. Is there a correlation, or or can people sometimes confuse the social disconnectedness and being introspective?
3: yeah absolutely you know it's funny it's a it, it uh it seems like a peculiar coincidence when i was studying these guys but people thought einstein was deaf for a while too He. <laughs> He was very introspective, and he had something called echolalia, which is where you repeat words under your breath before you say them. Uh, almost seemed a little autistic, tended to stay on his own. Elon Musk would, was almost in a trance some of the time. Nikola Tesla had hallucinations. Now, in the case of Nikola Tesla and Elon Musk, they had this thing called eidetic memory, which is this in- really accurate visual memory, so you see an object as if it's right in front of you. So Elon could be facing you, but what he sees is something else. He sees something in his memory, and this memory Nikola Tesla used to harness it and became like a CAD CAM machine. I mean, he was like a human computer-aided design machine because he could build a system and manipulate it and test it and refine it and finish it off before he actually put it into uh, real form, and it would be perfect the very first time. It's really astonishing but yeah I'd say a lot of these guys um, have traits that might have been that might have looked a little bit like autism or deafness when they were young so it's, it's an interesting um, finding because it, it, it I think it supports this idea that we ought to be very open-minded about neurodiversity in corporations because a lot of times these people who seem a little bit weird those are exactly the people who are going to be fantastically creative. <laughs>
2: No, it's a great point. And and we often see that, that when you have teams around innovation, right? I mean, you have a group of folks that basically have to deliver on sustaining ops, and and those folks aren't necessarily the folks that think outside of the box. But when you get the transformation innovation, that neurodiversity is important. Are there things that we can learn from these quirky individuals that that we should look for in terms of what we bring in to hire or when we're trying to foster that type of innovation versus when we're trying to do execution?
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, There's two other traits that I haven't talked about yet that I think are really, really important, and they're both traits you can cultivate, which is great. You can cultivate them in yourself, and you can cultivate them in your employees or even your children. Uh, One of them is self-efficacy, which is a a very fancy word for a task-related confidence, meaning you... uh, Mm -hmm. A person with high self-efficacy has intense faith in their ability to overcome obstacles and achieve their goals. And Elon Musk is the poster child of self-efficacy, right? Like this is a guy who finds out that NASA has no plans of going to Mars and thinks, well, all right then, I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves and get us to Mars myself. And
2: amazing.
3: that- That was she-
2: an amazing launch. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. watching those rockets come back and land on the
3: pad. He is an amazing guy. And that, that intense faith in your own ability to overcome obstacles means you will take on bigger challenges and you'll stick with them even when things start to go wrong so even if there's criticism or even if there's failure or even if there's obstacles you'll stick with them because you know you're going to surmount those obstacles now we can build that in people so that's uh it's a hugely valuable trait not just in innovation but in productivity more generally uh one of the best ways is early wins like giving people a chance to to overcome problems and not rescuing them too soon. So when you rescue someone because they're having a little difficulty with a task, that's good for social bonding, but it undermines their sense of self-efficacy. So it's better to just say, hey, I have faith you can do this, you're gonna get through it, right? Uh, the second thing that can really build self-efficacy is hero stories. So humans are wired for vicarious learning. As a social animal, we figure out what we can do and what's safe to eat and and what we can't do by watching other humans so that we don't have to make all the same mistakes that everybody else makes. And so when we see somebody else overcome obstacles to achieve their goals, it helps to teach us what we can do. So sharing hero stories and celebrating people's wins around the organization is extremely important. Uh, One other trait I'd like to bring up if if I have time. Do I have time to talk about one other trait?
2: Please. Oh yeah, please do.
3: all of the innovators I studied, and I wasn't looking for this, so again, this was a surprising coincidence for me. All of the innovators I studied, with the exception of Edison, and Edison was the odd man out on this one, but all of the other innovators were fiercely idealistic, hmm. which which meant they were pursuing some goal they saw as intrinsically noble and important, and it was more important to them than their health, uh, than their reputation, sometimes more important to them than their families, and this gave them incredible focus and motivation, but it also provided a form of ego defense for them. So mm. even if even if you didn't like them, or you didn't agree with them, or people ridiculed them, they stuck with it because they felt they were doing something more important than themselves, more important than how you felt about them.
0: Wow, so smart, hardworking, grit, but also a uh, uh, purpose-driven um, uh, innovators
3: having a grand purpose is incredibly motivating, right? So Elon Musk really wants to get to Mars. He wants to get to Mars a lot more than he wants to make money on SpaceX. And so that's Mm -hmm. part of why he's not gonna take it public because he wants to have the degrees of latitude he needs to get that company to Mars.
0: So we asked Dr. uh, Dr. Lombardi, you know, his experience over the last 10 years being at Marivelle. I have two part question. One is uh, as you're educating tomorrow's innovators and CEOs and business leaders what have you noticed over the last decade uh, in terms of their attention span their desire to learn their ambition has there has there been a change in terms of your students appetite to put a dent in the universe that's one and then the second is uh, where do you expect to see the next breakthrough innovation where does it come from where and
3: who? wow those are big questions <laughs> so uh, the first one it's got kind of a two-sided answer on the one hand i think people really do want to put a dent in the universe i think steve jobs was an incredible role model for a lot of people and you know made us believe that we had to do something meaningful i think elon musk does that too so they want to do something meaningful i would say on the downside in some ways the fact that our students are always connected to the news makes them incremental thinkers right they might come to class and they're very focused on current events and uh current events don't actually make you a big thinker. Um, So I would say that that's a little bit of something I struggle with a little bit in the classroom. Uh, In terms of where I think the biggest innovations are probably coming from, I mean, I think some of the biggest ones right now are gonna be in gene editing. I think that's gonna change everything. I think that we're gonna take a whole series of diseases off the face of the planet, and that's gonna be an incredible thing for so many families who are suffering with um, diseases that prior to now have had no treatment.
2: Wow. So CRISPR is hot. It's going to change some of that in terms of how we look at gene-editing techniques. Um, Super hot. So, and, and hey, related to that, I'm trying to ask, is there, is there something different about these individuals? Because they were all founder owners, right? They all exerted, com- they wanted complete control, and they basically set their landscape the way they wanted, and everybody worked around them, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at how Elon operates um, in, in the field, or, I mean, whether it's like SpaceX or at Tesla, I mean, everything's built around him. Right. Uh, and, and this founder owner model, no other shareholders. I mean, he's got majority control um, and other folks all, all seem to work in that model. Is that is that kind of how the future will look like as people coalesce around these type of individuals or does it have to work in a, or can it work in a different way?
3: Well, you know, one thing I've been thinking about writing about recently is the fact that. Uh, I don't think a lot of fa- first-time founders of big companies, I don't think they realize how much going public is going to change their life and change their company. Mm-hmm. And if I could give an entrepreneur one warning, it would I would say, don't go public unless you absolutely have to. Because the board of directors and the stockholders are going to really change the nature of your firm. And sometimes they're going to squeeze the magic right out of it. Uh, The stock market has a relatively short time horizon, right? Everything gets focused on these earnings reports. And if you're focused on a quarter's earnings, it gets really hard to do something really big and bold and long-term.
2: No, it makes a lot of sense. It's one of the pieces of research that, that I'm looking at, right? When you start a company, it's, it begins with a purpose and a mission, and then you bring people around that purpose a mission, and then right. you, bring, you bring out a product to the market that supports that purpose and mission, and then you find customers that evangelize that and grow that over time, and then you start looking at markets. But when you get to that other piece where you go public, that's the part where you only care about financial metrics, and that destroys the company.
3: So, yeah, Yeah, a a lot. I love that you use the word mission. A lot of companies are started with a mission where there's something we really want to achieve in the world. And it's so intrinsically motivating that we're going to work nights and we're going to work extra hard and we're going to pour our passion and our soul into it. But then the company gets big enough to where maybe the only thing we agree on is money. And money is an extrinsic motivator. It doesn't have that same passion. Maybe for a few people. There might be a few people that feel incredibly passionate about money. So, so this is going to
0: be an absolute bestseller. It's, a, it's just a fascinating topic. I'm interested to know, how did you, what was the impetus? How did you decide to, to, uh, to, uh, to write about this? And, and were you thinking about quirkiness as an attribute when you started or did it come out of the research?
3: Yeah, it, did, it I wasn't thinking about quirkiness at all. The way this started, I've been in studying innovation for over 20 years. I have an innovation textbook that I have to revise every couple of years. So I thought I knew the field pretty well. I've been teaching it for years. And then in 2010, when Steve Jobs was looking a little too thin, let's say. My students started asking me, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Apple? Is that innovation in Apple's DNA or is that going to... Is that only in the man? And how are they going to find a successor? And at the heart of that question, they were also asking, can I be like Steve Jobs? Where does that magic come from? And I went to all the research and creativity and innovation, and I realized the answer was not there. And I was really disturbed by that. Uh, But then the other thing I realized is that that kind of question about what makes someone an exceptional innovator is not typically studied in our field because it's not very conducive to research design. You know, we like to have big samples that we can run statistics on. And if we can't have big samples, we'd like to do really intimate lab settings, but you're not going to get these guys into the laboratory either. So you can't get a big sample and you can't get them into the lab. And so most people just don't try to study them at all. And I was a full professor. So I just, I, you know, I can kind of do what I want to do. So I started, I started (laughs) studying Steve Jobs for my own sake. I just love tenure. (laughs) Yeah. Right, right. So I just started studying Steve Jobs because I wanted to understand. Uh, I already knew a lot about Apple, but I wanted to understand what he was like as a man. Like, what were his beliefs? What were his biases? What were his limits? What were his motivations? And the weird thing is that the more I studied Steve Jobs, the more I started seeing similarities with Dean Kamen who was somebody else I had studied. And Dean Kamen's the guy who invented the world's first portable uh, drug infusion pump, the world's first portable dialysis machine, and then of course the Segway, which we all know. Dean Kamen and Steve Jobs were so much alike that I was shocked by it. And at that point I decided, you know what, I'm gonna do a multiple case study research approach. I'm gonna get together a sample of these extreme outlier innovators and I'm gonna study them. And uh, all the stuff you see in the book, that just came out of that research project. Fascinating. I'd say the only thing in the book that I would have anticipated up front is I, I would have anticipated the intelligence because, you know, you know, they're smart. And I suspected that we would see idealism because both Steve Jobs and Dean Kamen had a tremendous amount of idealism. But the separateness and, and some of the other stuff in the book, that was really surprising to me.
2: Wow. We are here with Melissa Schilling, professor at NYU and author of the upcoming book on February 13th, 27, 2018, Quirky, The Remarkable Story of Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. Got to get it on February 13th, help her with her Amazon numbers, and uh, pop on in there. Thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you. This
0: was fun.
2: We could Thank have you. talked to you for an hour. You were great. Thank Actually, you so we much. should. We should set up some time and hang out. In New York.
0: <laughs> I like that. That was right. fantastic. Well, thank um, you so much. It's, it's a must-read book. It's going to be a bestseller, and uh, and uh, it was it was uh, it was great speaking to uh, uh, to to and learning about these these quirky traits. I think I think Ray, you have some of these quirky traits. So so <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it's uh, now our opportunity to learn about. We've talked about disruption in higher ed. We've talked about how disruptive uh, the characteristics of disruptive thinkers. Now let's talk about, um, you know, Ray and I did live uh, interviews from Davos, World Economic Forum, and without a doubt, the most talked about technology at Davos for five days was blockchain. I would have thought it was going to be AI, continuation of last year, but I think blockchain dethroned AI as the talked about topic. So we now have a blockchain expert. We have Gunther Sonnenfeld founder partner of Novena Capital. He's also an advisor to Holonomics Education and other organizations. Gunther is a seasoned technologist and a global strategist. He's a former partner at K5 Ventures and has served in senior innovation roles at multinationals such as Omnicorp Group. Gunther has had a direct hand in development of over 50 ventures and is the recipient of the Forrester Groundswell Award for pioneering analytics work uh, with Adobe. Uh, Gunther helped launch the world's first Bitcoin POS system, Coin of Sale, in 14 international markets. Uh, And he has also designed leading-edge blockchain systems. So unlike some of the prior guests we may have had, where there are thinkers of blockchains, Uh, Gunther has actually implemented and is a thought leader. The reason we invited Gunther is uh, The Next Economy, a research report that was just published last week. You can follow and learn more about The Next Economy by following Gunther on Twitter at G-O-O-N-T-H. Welcome, Gunther, to uh, Disrupt TV.
2: Thank you, Vol. Thank you, Ray. appreciate you having me on here. Hey, thank you for being on the show. So- as Vala said, you know, at Davos, it was all about blockchain. It was all about derivatives around Bitcoin. It hits all around us at this moment. It is the foundational layer of transactions, apps, identity. So how did you decide to go in on crypto and blockchain so early? What was it that you saw um, and what kind of potential uh, in terms of the thesis you have for your fund?
4: Well, it's a great question. I, I think it's it, it was a merger of a of a few things. Three in particular. One was um, seeing some massive holes uh, in the startup venture market um, that really that pertain to this notion that a lot of startup ventures and middle stage ventures were not addressing uh, real economic problems. So you have your Ubers and you have your you know your Airbnbs and and a host of AI technologies and such, but um, not a ton of startups that are focusing on real socioeconomic and ecological uh, problems, right? And um, at least not at scale. And that ties into also the economic shifts that are going on, as we're seeing. So the Davos conversation is an interesting one because, among other things, institutions are finally saying, oh, there's a revolution going on here, and uh, maybe money's not going to be worth what it was yesterday. And perhaps we still we have to make reinvestments in things like middle markets. Uh, You know, Nick Hanauer has talked about how there is no thriving economy without a thriving middle class. And then you have stalwarts like uh, you know Ray Dalio and Larry Fink who are basically saying, look, we have to invest in companies that serve a social purpose and in some cases an environmental purpose because you know this is this is what the economic conditions are predicated on. So um, you know that was a large impetus for us to do this. And then you know, the, the, the blockchain thing was, uh, for me at least, was sort of a delayed reaction, if you will. So getting involved in the early POS system was a great uh, entry point. Uh, admittedly, we were way early. Um, I mean, first of all, Bitcoin was not as widely adopted as it is now. It was not a trading phenomenon like it is now. Um, but we learned a ton about what adoption could be like working in these different markets, which were basically closed ecosystems, but where people were using mobile uh, devices, uh, early forms of a wallet, I wouldn't quite call them wallets, but they were, you know, they were transactional. And uh, we were also playing with data. And what what were the implications on personal data if money actually had data bundled with it? So, um, so cut to today, uh, my partner and I started talking, I was transitioning out of a, a prior venture. And, um, you know, he said, Hey, you know, why don't we take our uh, investment and startup expertise and apply it into this middle market where alternative asset classes are becoming such a desirable uh, and such a focal point for so many people that we knew uh, both as institutional investors and also private family offices and in different funds and where we could actually help them place their money uh, and there's a lot of it uh, for these types of investments and so the blockchain of course represents that revolution um, and, and and to caveat it, it's not so much that, you know, we're pro-blockchain or, you know, that you need a distributed ledger for everything, but more along the lines of this idea that you could integrate systems together to disrupt whole industries or to develop what McKinsey has outlined brilliantly in a recent report, these uh, expanding product ecosystems, with, which represent trillions in market opportunity, so.
0: Yeah, in, in your next economy report, um you talked about the different classes of assets. You said assets reaching or nearing <laughs> thresholds like treasuries and bonds and equities. Then you talked yeah. about this, the distressed assets like land, retail, and then invertible assets like startup ventures, precious metals. Yeah. And encompassing those different classes of assets, you projected a market cap for blockchain to be 25 trillion by 2023. Now, before we get into the projections and, and the different asset classes, mm-hmm. now for our audience, can you? Maybe we step back a little. Can you yeah. explain the differences between cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and centralized versus decentralized blockchain, so we can level set the audience?
4: Yeah. So, so if you think of a blockchain as a as an underlying technology, uh, 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 an infrastructure that is basically at its starting point is a, is a distri- as a ledger, right? Uh, thing where you have you can account, you can put assets into it or money, and you can account for it. And that ledger can talk to different uh, databases and people. That's essentially a blockchain, right? So, blockchains encrypted technologies have been around for decades, um, and arguably, blockchain technologies started developing on on the enterprise commercial side about 35 years ago. Um, it's not widely known. So, 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 blockchain would be underlying technology or technology layers that go alongside of of transactional systems or exchanges, and then cryptocurrencies would be the basic units of measure, you can consider them money or currency, or they can be something that are more things that are more dimensional like tokens. So tokens don't necessarily represent money. They can actually be access points into an equity or an asset pool or any number of things. Or,
2: or any value exchange, right?
4: That's exactly right. Or mm-hmm. a value exchange. That's right.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So we're seeing that, right? And, and what, are, what are the top use cases? Like in your thesis, where do you see this growing out the most where we're disrupting um, not just product and service offerings not just trading networks um like where do you see this aggregation point happen is it, is it on the b2b side is it b2b to c is it b2c or is it or is it a specific set of industries no it's a great question
0: yeah in the report you actually listed a dozen or so industries nine actually was it nine okay and then yeah. you had disruptions nine, and nine. nine in there yeah nine okay disruptions yeah. and opportunities next to them so as yeah. you answer Ray's questions, maybe in the context of which industries are forward thinkers, which ones are laggards, and where do you see the biggest impact?
4: I think the best way to, to, to answer the question is that we're probably seeing the most activity at scale happening in the enterprise blockchain space. Okay. And so you don't hear a whole lot about that for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is that there are competitive reasons and regulatory mm-hmm. reasons. Um, but if you look at the main industries like healthcare and insurance, and of course, banking um, and, uh, and energy, and, and the, the, one, the, the others that we listed in the, in the report, um, they all obviously have massive transactional capabilities. Uh, you're involving uh, fulfillment and reimbursements and, and all of that stuff. Those are the more obvious things. And then, of course, there are massive data things that we have to do, and with all the data breaches that we've seen uh, recently, um, these companies have really had to step up their game in terms of figuring out ways to not only streamline the data that they're managing, but also, in many cases, they have to develop new forms of utility for customers and for partners, such that they can get their products and services out into market and also protect them and their customers in the same same breath. So, um, really the disruption is within industries and across all these industries such that they are able to transact, perform, and fulfill on product and service agreements in a much better way.
2: Makes sense. Okay. So, actually, what's interesting about this is, is, the, is the network economies that are being formed. Do you right. actually think it's going to be a winner takes all market, or will the second entrance, third entrance, be able to be successful?
4: No, I, I, I don't. I, I, it's a great question. I, I think. Uh, probably the economic philosophy you might or ideology you could adopt with that is what we call regenerative. So you sort of have the new deal economics where it's very tax focused and it's like, okay, well, the the rich should pay more taxes or this group should be responsible for more fiscal responsibility. And we're, we're not really believers in that. Um, It's, it's less about a zero sum game and more about how are you facilitating market integration across industries? And that's really the value value of of so so you are, see
2: that as the inclusiveness aspect of being able to democratize access and ability to actually enter the market, which grows the market yeah. and creates more participation, as opposed to a full winner-takes-all market where people right. skim off the top.
4: That's right. So, so uh, a really good meta example is probably Amazon, right? So Amazon is this massive monopoly. Bezos is a genius in terms of a, a reinvesting dollar-for-dollar revenues back into the, into the company and its and its resultant in infrastructures. And one of, the, one of the really interesting things about Amazon, which is overlooked almost entirely, are the middle markets in which they, they, they sell their products and services. So if you can imagine that we're coming upon uh, an economic situation where there are less jobs, um, there are people have less income, they have less disposable income, and I'm not talking about generational wealth, I'm talking about the average person, right? Um, particularly here in America, we are coming upon a, a period in time very soon where people are not gonna have money to buy products and services. So the onus is on a company, a, mono, a, a Goliath, like Amazon, to actually support SMEs, smaller businesses, smaller companies, startup ventures, and put resources in the hands of the average person such that they can generate their own, uh, their own forms of wealth or their, you know, new forms of resources, and then be able to tap into that product ecosystem And then empower the whole thing. And that's, it's, uh, you know, it's not commonly thought of that way because, you know, again, if you have a large, large uh, online retailer like Amazon, they're not thinking along these lines right now because they're making, you know, fistfuls of money.
2: You know, we got a great comment here from uh, Esteban Kolsky, uh, who's watching this. He says, it's not a single market. It's millions of micro markets. And there's no winner takes all. There's a millions or billions of winners, uh, which is the value of crypto in a distributed model. Um, yeah. What do you think about that?
4: Can he disclaim how much Amazon stock he holds? I hold That's not uh,
2: Richie Awari, That's his question. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I have no stock. I actually have no equities. Um, I, um, I've pulled out of all the traditional markets. So I'll just throw that out there. I've, I have no I'm not promoting anybody in particular, (laughs) Um, but to his point, I mean, he's right. You know, what we're looking at here is the formation of micro markets. And I I don't mean to get, um, you know, toothy about it, but it's it's really the case. Uh, So again, going back to the Amazon uh, example, if you can imagine that they're forming their own uh, bank uh, and their own credit systems, they already have uh, various blockchain innovations and patents put into place. That's not widely talked about. Um, but if they can, they, if they will be facilitating the growth of SMEs and smaller bit players who can, for example, provide alternatives for organic food. And if you've noticed in the whole food situation, where um, you know private and white labeling has gone by the wayside because they don't have a lot of alternatives for stock uh, and for inventory, this is going to become a bigger, bigger problem. So. We're going to see more of this emerge with big players like Amazon, and we're going to see a lot more big partnerships uh, occur. So, again, blockchain-like systems will come to the fore to facilitate those integrations. And then on on the currency or the money side, um, don't be surprised to see Amazon issuing its own currency down the road or, you know, a token that might actually go and coincide with fiat. It might uh, replace certain credit systems. I mean, any number of things are possible in that regard.
0: Yeah, Richie Eterno, who wrote a book on uh, blockchain trust, trust economy, called it the Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in your report, you described two driving is two, two, two big shifts that drive, drove the value of blockchain. One was cryptocurrencies, which a month ago was a $650 billion market gap. I don't yep. know where it is today. I'm guessing around 400. Uh, and the other one was uh, re- energy return on investments, EOR, EROI. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit
4: about that? Okay, so this is a big, big factor in the dec- in the in the aggregate decline of fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar is a petrodollar, right? And it's backed by speculative oil contracts. So that, I mean, <laughs> and a military. Back. That's correct, right? Um, and so what that means is, while we can raise the the, the short term value of those contracts speculatively, and you know contain uh, you know price per barrel at a certain point, um, the reality is it's in overall it's in decline. Okay. And, and so, with net energy decline, that simply means that oversupply of oil. Since we have, we do have oversupply in, in North America and other, in other regions. Um, 200,
2: 300 years of oil. So that's exactly right. And it can't match uh, demand.
4: And so that's why we're going into rapid decline. So you know, people are saying that price per barrel will probably go down to twelve or fifteen dollars a barrel or lower in the next thirty-six months. Which I think are that those are pretty accurate projections. Which means that the U.S. dollar. Uh, in particular will be halved over time. It doesn't mean that it's gonna completely bottom out, but it will be halved. So if you take that precondition, which is really interesting, then you look at the fact that traditionally stocks and bonds were inversely proportional, but in the last two or three years, we've seen them actually dipping at the same time. Bonds have gone through inverse yield curves, uh, really weird market distortions. So you have currency decline, uh, inverse yields in bonds, um, and then and then, of course, we're issuing more debt. Uh, the, the u s is actually going to go you know ask for a hundred trillion dollars more from the central bank. and then you have other conditions such as um, unemployment and underemployment rates, which are not commonly discussed, and the, the key one being changes in labor uh, labor force participation rates. We're looking at massive steep uh, steepening declines in, in the in the economy, particularly local economies. So all of which to say that, These are the preconditions for a shift where we need to take the the cash that's out there, what Ray Dalio calls cash on the sidelines, and put that into durable investments so real assets. What do people need? They need food, they need water, they need land, they need energy, they need money, right? And so that's really the promise. And so alternative asset classes are emerging in those areas um, where we can put that that cash, that liquidity, uh, some of that debt, and then... um, and then create investments that can regenerate returns.
0: That's terrific insights. Gunther, if you ever have research that you want Ray and I to review and distribute to our network, please send it to me. And and then will. It's really, really
2: good good insight. No, Gunther, we'd love to have you at our conference in October. Thank you. We'll send you more details. Okay. Okay. Um, But but if I take your theory ahead, like Greenspan hid RM2 in real estate. Right. Right. Yep. And so is crypto our next real estate where we hide the value of money or is crypto our fall where we take away the dollar Ponzi scheme?
4: I don't think it's neither. Um, and I'm glad I, you said it, not me, but uh, uh, kudos to you. Yeah, I'm just being
2: provocative. I agree with you. I just want to, want to raise your questions here. So. No,
4: it's a very good question. I, I would look at it this way and I'm not saying I'm right. I would look at it this way. I would say that there is a, a, a very, very direct relationship burgeoning between fiat, which is not going to go away overnight for lots of different reasons, among them behavioral reasons. We've been accustomed to using money in this capacity. And crypto. So if you develop new assets, you have an encrypted method by which those assets can be duly represented in real time in real with real market valuations, right? Hence the, the, the crypto side of it. And then you have the blockchain to securitize, collateralize, protect, privatize uh, that, that implementation. Now you have All sorts of new economic models that can emerge that are not only um, stable, but they're again they can be regenerated, right? And they can be built upon over and over again. The problem right now is with our debt models, capital models, PPM structures, all this stuff that we're accustomed to doing in finance and in in investment. They're very rigid, right? Um, And they're monocultural in their nature, um, for for lack of a a, you know, to use fancy descriptors. But what that means is we have polycultural needs governed by a monocultural monetary system. Well, that's, that's a setup for failure. That doesn't work. So in a proactive way of looking at this, let's take all of that cash on the sidelines that Ray, Ray Dolly was talking about, and let's put that into real assets and then use cryptocurrencies and blockchain innovations to facilitate.
2: So crypto becomes borderless currencies and right. by fiat uh, takes over. Richie Atwari here says we have 180 fiat currencies in four according to secure, secure cryptocurrencies and everything else is a token of value, which is a very interesting statement. But how about this? Maybe what we're just doing is we've proactively created a larger money supply because we're, expand, we're expecting a larger pie. Just kidding.
4: <laughs> well, and, and, you, and I know you don't mean that in the quantitative easing. No, I don't. Where deflationary or inflationary measures are going to go completely completely kaput sooner yes, than later. But the you. point, what this really means is kind of what Bernard Lieter has and others have done in the alternative currency space, where, where they've gone into open and closed uh, ecosystems, local economies, and they've developed assets, right? Often renewable, often socioeconomic, whatever the need of the geography was, and then issued a currency to represent those communities. That is really what we're talking about here. And so cryptos can represent versions of those local economies. And it's not uh, inconceivable that you would still have a national sovereign currency that's backed by something real that would be tethered in some way, shape, or form to those local currencies. We We see that being a total possibility.
2: So basically, we'll create more points to tether new value as we introduce new cryptocurrencies that create new fiat um, and hopefully um, kind of ease the transition from what we have today to where we're headed around purpose and mission.
4: 100%. And I think that the, the word to use here to your point is utility. And I use that word a lot and it means different things. What we mean by utility is the actual applied use of an asset for social or ecological impact. So, in the case of an energy unit, and we're working on a uh, about to start a big project in the space uh, with a group that has a, um, a renewable portfolio of about 1.5 billion, we're going to be using cryptos to collateralize and securitize the assets. Uh, we're basically going to create asset backed securities for secure investment and to develop those assets into various different forms of, of value for. For, for multiple stakeholders, especially the communities that would use them. That's utility value. That right? is. So when right. you talk about a crypto that does that, that's a real store of value. That's right. a real medium of exchange as opposed to a speculative store of value in a right. network where all the
2: actors are anonymized. You can't see them. You're actually not building trust. Right? And cost a capital zero. That's exactly. Or negative. It. Or negative. All or right, negative. I got a DM here that says, can we go on for another hour? No, the answer is no. We are at <laughs> the top of the hour. We can't. And we're here with Gunther Sonnenfeld, founding partner of Novena Capital. Uh, is it Novena or Novena? So, Novena, yeah. Novena, Novena. Capital. Yeah. And uh, you can follow him at G-O-O-N-T-H. Gunth. And uh, and we're, we're mm-hmm. definitely going to – please hold October 22nd, 25th. Constellations Connected Enterprise in Half Moon Bay. We'll get you out there. Um, but, uh, but we're definitely going
0: uh, check, out the, check out the latest report, The Next Economy, How the Blockchain is Unlocking and Expanding Alternative Asset Classes. Check out the reports available to you for free. Just go to Gunther's Twitter page and
2: you'll see, you'll see it. Awesome there. thinking. Awesome multi And we're going to issue a new thinking. report in the next
4: week uh, on, on, on new forms of value tied to alternative assets. And in that is going to be our approach to our next generation blockchain. So Send
0: it to us, please. We
2: will. Yeah, Thank awesome you. Awesome stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Gunther. Thank you guys. Really Actually. Holy bala. Oh my god, this thing, this has gone so fast. Yeah, we've talked you know about what? so much. We it's gotta
0: we, we gotta tone down the extraordinary guests we have on this show because my brain is fried right now. <laughs> there he is. There is one of is awesome. here <laughs> we're talking about blockchain and accidentally, coincidentally, we get one of the top ten most influential blockchain thought leaders in the world dropping in. How does that happen?
3: Hey <laughs> awesome, Richie.
2: That guy was awesome. Uh, well,
4: let me, let me say this to you. There's a lot of people that are talking bullshit all day. That yeah. guy knew his shit.
0: He, does, he did. He, yes, he did.
4: <laughs> because most we, of the other conversations I've heard is complete horseshit. He knew what he was talking about.
0: Aubrey, I ho- I, make sure he watches the latter part of this. Uh, <laughs> We're <ringing>
4: endorsement here. <laughs> hey, we need to do something specific on blockchain. We're not going deep enough. Yeah,
2: we're not, going, we're not going deep enough in this conversation. So you guys need to pick a day and just do blockchain.
0: Will you be there?
2: Absolutely. Are you kidding?
0: All right. You got All it. Right. All right. right. We, we got
2: We'll do something in March. Uh, this is awesome. So very, very, very thanks, cool. Thanks. <laughs> So who do we have next um, on, I don't know, what episode is 105? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess. For our 163rd episode, we have- uh, I think it's um, episode 94 according to uh, Aubrey, but 97 (laughs) according to that Aubrey's too
0: conservative with the numbering of episodes. But uh, we have Andreas Rayner, he's president, CEO, and director at PROS, PROS. We have James Norwood, he's executive vice president and CMO at EpiServer. And we have one of my favorite guests and one of the top thought leaders in the space of digital marketing. We have Cindy Zhou, uh, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. So if you thought today's show was great, you're not going to be disappointed next week. Ray, closing remarks.
2: Oh, I'm just, this has been a crazy week. And all I can say is this is the best part of the week. So hopefully it is for everyone else. Happy Friday. And uh, we'll see you next Friday.
0: Thanks. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye you. Mm-hmm.